Hey, we're live. Uh, and we're, live. we're back. Um, we're back. I'll try and like speed run this. Um, you know, speed run the game of giving insight uh, to people. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you call that that game. Um, <laughs> open world, uh, like prophecy. Um, but I was so I like ended on talking about how um like my life has sucked because I like got probable COVID and we stopped really doing um extreme mold avoidance. Yeah, when I got like I went to the ER in on March twentieth and was pretty sick and they you know, gave me fluids and Ativan and supportive care and um, then discharged me. And uh, we basically just like um, ended up staying at this sort of um, short-term vacation rental place, which sounds fancy. It's not, it's nice, but it's not fancy. It's more like a lot of older people come here and there's like RV spots, but there's also these small cottages, um, in, uh, Pahrump, Nevada, which is this kind of weird mid-sized town, like an hour West of Vegas, but in a different County where prostitution is legal. You know, that's a common misconception about Vegas is the idea that prostitution is legal in Vegas. It's legal in like many counties near Vegas. But in actual Vegas and Clark County, it's not legal. Um, it's like one of the few counties in Nevada where prostitution isn't legal. Is that correct? I think so. I don't know how many counties. There's like some rule about how big the county. Um, actually, I might be wrong about that. Maybe it's just like a, a decision made on a local level. But yeah, so there are brothels here, which is uh, good because being disabled basically makes you kind of like an incel and uh, that's why we need uh sex work to be legal and there's nothing wrong with being a john no i'm i'm kidding mostly not i i don't know about the ethics but i could not afford that you know the fucked up thing about ssi uh about disability being way below poverty line is that you don't get any discretionary income to spend on prostitutes, which, you know, or anything for that matter or anything. Yeah. I guess that's also true, but you know, you could combine getting like a Medicaid approved caregiver and like prostitute, like maybe like sexy nurse. Um, I don't know. Just, you know, thinking about like palliative care for illnesses where there's no cure. I just think that can make people's lives better. Certainly the glut of incels that I'm sure are concentrated in like the greater Nevada or, or sorry, Vegas area. Yeah. Included. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. I, it's sort of, um, yeah, well, you know, both Dasha and Adam are from Vegas, which is mm-hmm. an interesting place to grow up. So it's kind of notable. I mean, I guess it would be weirder if they were from like, Albuquerque or something. I mean, Vegas is still a major city, so I guess it's not that weird to be from there, but it's like I've met so few people in my life that are from Vegas, you know? 
that I always it always stands out to me. Like um, it just seems like a weird place to grow up as a child. Like um, Sloan, this kid in my um, middle school in Vermont, um, who was really warped um, and just like to you know seem to uh, want to be like Eminem or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And just as an aside, you did not go to like private school in Vermont? Oh, no. Fuck no. Um, well, it was just go to the, the school, school I'm talking about was just like a sh- uh, rural public school. It's small, but I also, when I went to high school for the first two years, I went to high school in Vermont. Like later I went to a arts boarding school for my last two years of high school in California, which was private, but in my defense, I got really good scholarships. Um, the high school I went to in Vermont, the high school, actually was technically um, private, but I went for free like most locals because it was this weird thing where when there isn't a public high school in a town, it effectively serves as a subsidized public school for anyone in the surrounding area. So like this is a school that had international student boarding students um, that paid like tons of money, but then all of like the redneck locals were paying nothing because it was the only school there. So they literally like the town had to subsidize tuition going there. Totally. This is something I've only encountered in Vermont where there's like a glut of public services in general. And yeah, we're not a, a glut, debate. just a dearth, a dearth, like a a a, a total oh, lack of a glut. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Especially in like Northeast Kingdom area, which, right? Because Saint Jay also, where um, you said you have friends from that area. You've been to Saint yeah, Saint Johnsbury. So yeah, there's two. I went to the other one in Lindenville, but there's those two schools in the towns next to each other are literally the same exact thing just um both private boarding schools that also most of the locals go for two for free um but anyway uh yeah what was i saying i got covid and uh yeah and ssi is below the poverty line and you can't pay for prostitutes and or really anything like housing that's also a problem but yeah, I don't know. It, it may sound like a little overconfident in my own judgment to say I got COVID when I did not test positive, but it's just like, I have some level of immune deficiency, like low immunoglobulin, not like HIV level, but like, um, like to the extent that I really get slammed by, you know, if a cold goes around my family or a flu-like illness, I normally get hit way harder than them and for a little bit longer. But I've had a few of those things over the course of like me being sick, uh, like in the past few years. And this is like by far off the charts, like the worst. Um, so that's part of why I'm really sure it was. Besides very specific symptoms and also just like how infectious whatever we would have had to get uh, whatever we got would have had to be because we're literally just camping in the wilderness and my sister 
It's just like go grocery shopping and she somehow got it just from that even though we're in an area with like very few we were in an area with very few reported cases at the time whatever i got it was an extremely infectious and extremely devastating virus that's all yeah mm-hmm. like so i guess you know in theory it could not be covid but like I've had plenty of like colds and flus and since being sick and I've never like been sick for fucking two months after that. Considering the the epidemic, it's more likely than not that it was COVID. Yeah, and they told me the um in the ER, and then I also read more about it later that the um, PCR test for the active virus is very has a very high false negative rate, like thirty percent or something, which is actually like way way worse than it sounds statistically. I think like even like um tests that have like uh like over 90 percent um sensitivity are i don't know the statistics is a little above my head but for some reason even tests that have like 90 percent sensitivity depending on what the pretest probability of having the virus is um are considered like fairly inaccurate but like it's basically like 70%, not 90. Pretty bad odds of getting a correct result. And probably if I was sick enough to go into the ICU, which I wasn't, um, I they would probably just clinically diagnose me with it or say presume positives. But if you're not sick enough to go into the ICU, it's not like they care enough to make like a clinical diagnosis of it. They're just like, you probably had an upper respiratory infection of some kind, and we're going to get your heart rate and blood pressure down to a reasonable level, um, and then discharge you, and then like you're on your own or whatever. Um, and then, you know, which obviously makes sense. It's the ER. They're not trying to manage chronic problems, but I was like, um, even in like the two weeks afterwards, I was like so close to having go having to go back to the ER because like my symptoms were actually managed pretty well in the ER. Like one of the first non-terrible ER experiences I've had. Um, but mm-hmm. it, like they didn't give me any like meds to help with managing the symptoms, like tachycardia or even just like the pain and flu. Um, like shit um on discharge and it's like come on man like i do you you really don't want me taking up like an er bed so why not like discharge me with like some shit that can keep me uh stable but like um yeah that they actually offered me morphine in the er and i declined it um really mainly because i like really wanted to make sure that i got a lot of testing done and that they took it seriously and maybe I'm paranoid but just given past interactions with 
healthcare professionals, I don't, I kind of felt like maybe they just thought I was like a drug seeker because I mentioned being mm-hmm. in pain. So, like, if I thought if I accept the morphine, maybe they'll do like nothing more to try and help. Like, they'll just be like, okay, you know, you get your morphine and get out of here. But, but it's, I've never had IV morphine. So, kind of, and then I had a lot of pain in the preceding days. So, I kind of regretted not taking it. You know, it's probably like any experience to be in the hospital and get, I don't know, IV morphine. But but to accept it would be to sort of capitulate to a different diagnosis, like de facto. That's one of the interesting things about, uh, as a tangent, on chronic pain treatment and um, the the also the diagnosis of opioid use disorder and then Suboxone, which is, you know, an opioid or it's at least a partial opioid agonist. And it's used to treat... Um, opioid use disorder or addiction um, in layman's terms, but it also could be um, an effective chronic pain treatment. But given the bureaucratic aspect of, um, and, and just like the insane biopolitics around tracking addicts and all of this like kind of stuff that's happened to overcorrect course after the opioid epidemic to the extent where like there are all kinds of registries that track various like controlled substances and like stuff that sort of violates the spirit of medical privacy if not like the letter of the law i would like because i want pain treated regardless of how i would totally accept say suboxone as a pain treatment but it's most mostly prescribed as a treatment for addiction. So if you accept it, you might capitulate to a diagnosis of addiction, even though it's fucking stupid because it could be an effective, you know, pain treatment. It also has been studied to be an effective antidepressant, which is interesting in and of itself. But um, anyway, that's like another example of the weird, like, you know, there are treatments that might be helpful, but to accept them means to like send all these, you know, weird signals to healthcare professional. I think that even before the pandemic, I thought that there's a very strong likelihood of. MECFS rates like skyrocketing due to environmental change, um, like rapid changes in the type of environmental pollution and like mold, toxic mold that leads to this. That's like one thing. And then also due to climate change, like many vector borne diseases like Lyme or malaria um, are also increasing. But before I even got sick, like, and before people were taking the pandemic seriously, I predicted, and I don't need to take like a ton of credit for this because lots of people with MECFS predicted this just because, and it's not like that hard to predict based on common sense, but most people just don't think about long-term sequelae of 
infectious diseases that are not death um, or recovery. So I predicted that this would lead to a major spike in MECFS, which could possibly lead to beneficial outcomes for people with MECFS because there must be some threshold of like numbers of people affected by a disease that leads to it being taken seriously um, and leads to uh, like an increase in um, research funding and the political will to get all of that done. And so I was very sure that this would lead to a major spike, like, and some people ran the numbers on this um, and uh, thought that there's a solid chance that around based on the numbers of people from who have had other major infections, um, there's a solid chance that around like 10% of the people who go, get COVID will end up with uh, ME-CFS. And 10% is conservative. For um, SARS, yeah. uh, the original SARS, it was something like 80%. Of course, that was yeah. more severe. And then there's also like anyone who gets acute respiratory distress syndrome and is in the ICU will end up with um, like similar, end up with something like similar to MECFS along with like more obvious organ damage as well. Um, Like they'll never get back to normal exertion levels. But the important thing about this COVID thing is that I thought that even cases that aren't hospitalized, so-called mild cases, will lead to this. And from what I can tell, uh, that's starting to be recognized and to like play out. There have been uh, quite a few recent articles that actually discuss COVID in relation to MECFS. I mean, they normally talk about some of the more COVID-specific symptoms lasting a while some some of those are a little bit like different or uh additional to like mecfs symptoms um like some of the stuff around like lung damage strokes etc but also at the same time there are a ton of post-viral fatigue and like new onset pots um people from from what I can tell. Um, and I'm sorry, what is, what is POTS again? Uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So it's basically where based on your posture, like sitting or standing versus lying down, your heart rate skyrockets. I mean, of course, everyone's heart rate rises, but there's like a normal amount that it's supposed to rise when you uh, stand up or sit up and POTS is way above that threshold. Something like if your heart rate goes from, uh, I think jumps more than 30 or 40 BPM when like going to, going to standing. Um, and it kind of is comorbid with the more general category of orthostatic intolerance, which is just not being able to tolerate standing for whatever reason, normally like feeling like you're not getting enough blood to your brain. So yeah, I've read like this COVID-19 positive subreddit 
and there are people going through basically like what I went through when I first got sick with MECFS, but like maybe in a kind of more speedy because I had a slow onset and brutal way. Um, they're just like, when is this going to end? And they're like months out, you know, I don't really have like the level of bitterness and schadenfreude where I would like uh, delight in anyone getting MECFS unless they were like instrumental in uh, damaging the lives of MECFS patients. But I do have this selfish hope that, you know, that if a bunch of, you know, otherwise healthy youth get severe um, long-term chronic illness, that it won't go unresearched, you know, um, and unfunded. It's a numbers game. It has to be about some threshold, right? Because with MECFS, there's already a significant amount of, you know, young people who were otherwise healthy that suddenly get it. And yet for the most part, the public doesn't care. I don't know if that number suddenly doubled. And if it was experienced as part of a sort of collective spectacular traumatic event, like COVID, I would think that would be a little different. I mean, what do you think in, in terms of that, like perception? Well, I would hope that, just in general, there would be like a kind of seismic shift, I guess, the, the medical industry in terms of wanting to treat people. I, I don't know if there's going to be a, a, a massive sea change in terms of reconfiguring the entire previous conceptions of chronic illness by virtue of there being like a pandemic. But again, like you said, if, if previously healthy people who contracted a viral illness suddenly experienced this life-changing post-viral infectious problem, uh, to, to put it in the terms of not, not diagnosing it necessarily as MHCFS, but just diagnosing it as like some latent issue that is sort of incommensurate with the the normal symptoms of coronavirus. Ideally, there would be some <laughs> push, at least, to investigate further. Right. You know, I, I'm a cynic. I, I, I really think that for the most part, people don't want to hear the worst news, even when it's the truth. Yeah. But, Even if it happens to them, right? You know, like yeah. a lot of people with like two months into like post-viral fatigue probably don't want to like join, you know, a community of illness people, uh, sick people that like are like, well, there's no cure. And that, that was kind of like, you know, that, here's my f biggest regret. Like, I mean, not even that I got sick, obviously that I guess ranks but assuming you can't change acts of god or whatever but you can change how you reacted to it my biggest regret is like out of my um sort of general denial and also just like what really also sunk me was i think my aloofness it, it just took me so long to be involved in any like 
a chronic illness community and I could have done intense activism when I was healthy enough to like drive and walk, you know, two things really prevented that from happening. One is just denial about the whole situation I was in. And the other one was thinking that even if I was sick with something that was basically incurable, I could figure out the scientific aspect and like just focus on treating myself rather than focus on like helping others. So I basically didn't realize that it, it it's a problem that has to be solved on a political and like economic level before it can be solved scientifically. Like you can't just solve a scientific problem with like literally no funding, you know, it takes mm-hmm. money to do studies. I mean, there's like a political economy of science. You see people make this mistake in the community, like, every day and it's like even though there have been like almost no vocal and aggressive protests of the level of like act up or anything in this community people are still somehow like you know upset about even the idea of that sometimes not a very politicized community and they'll be like you know it, it looks bad and we just need to wait until there's science and like a biomarker so we can prove we're sick it's like bro you don't it's like that's a catch point too you don't get to that point if you don't fight for like, I don't know, at least over a hundred million a year in funding, that's like a magic number to me and not, it's like a low end magic number. Like that's the amount of money I'd have to see to even like entertain hope. Um, mm-hmm. I think it should be higher, um, especially to make up for the lack of research funding in the past. I'd like to see funding more in line with like AIDS, which is like over a billion, but at least 500 million. But 100 million, I'd feel some hope. I don't know, you know. I think things could start moving at a at a good clip research-wise um, if that happened. I mean, I guess I would say that I am not a particularly optimistic person. And I think that that barrier of people not wanting to hear the worst is a barrier but i mean once you're really sick there's only so long you can kind of be in denial and i would think that what needs to happen is that enough people you know have friends and family members enough people get sick and they have friends and family members that care that you know eventually everyone is like one degree closer one degree of separation closer to like someone that has ME-CFS, you know, like a lot of weird kind of marginal political bills that get passed actually hinge on stuff like that. Obvious personal investment and connection to, you know, legislator actually happens a solid amount of time. And it's not, it might be probably naive to expect that to happen for um, a really politically charged issue, but MECFS is like theoretically a, a bipartisan thing. It's just like who really could oppose, you know, uh, who would be vocally opposed to like upping funding for some you know, bad disease. Most people are indifferent, but like being actively opposed. If it ever became something that moved to the forefront of discourse, I just cannot imagine there being like really active opposition to it. 
you've hit the nail right on the head there. It would take like Jamie Dimon is a creature capable of reproducing if their child became sick to this degree. That would be the the impetus for research. Yeah. And and the research is already happening. It's just not necessarily legitimized. Yeah, or funded well enough to happen at a at a reasonable pace. One thing I find interesting um is that the the COVID long time long term symptoms people are already being like hystericized. Like you read these posts and it's like people that are, you know and I I bring up the idea of normality just because um I you know, people who are pathologically contrarian and seem to be uh committed to the idea that these chronic illnesses are all hysteric yeah seem to have like fully formed their opinions based on like interacting with tumblr scrutinies or something but it's just like people that are like fuck i'm like sick and i've been sick for three months and i keep going to the doctor and they say that covid symptoms only last like three weeks and that the definition of recovery means if you don't have a fever after three weeks, but I'm really sick and I was never like this before COVID. No one is helping me. Like no doctor is helping me. And on top of it all, they're like suggesting that my symptoms are psychological and that CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy um, and graded exercise therapy would help me. And so I, I wonder if, from that experience, people would be at all uh, radicalized because it's just like, this is something someone pointed out to me. It's like CBT and graded exercise therapy are shown to not work in MECFS, but in the in a way, it's almost crazier that you take literally uh, an entirely novel virus and you still have um, like the medical establishment suggesting they know enough about it to know that the sequelae are hysteria and treatable yeah. with CBT. This is the problem with fucking psycho with shrinks is that psychology gets all of the clout of being a hard science with none of the rigor. Like people take shit like CBT from MECFS. It sounds scientific. I don't know. It has like the veneer and like trappings and like, I, whatever were like um sheen of being evidence based but it's i mean it's literally not uh, based on evidence but they believe it for that reason and there's just kind of like outsized belief in and clout of like psych jargon like it really should be treated like as uh with the same level of scrutiny as like faith healing or uh, you know i don't know you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's just a catch-all for whatever is um, regarded as sort of outside the general medical field, symptomatically speaking. Right, and that that's the that's the other thing is that it's when these diagnoses of like conversion disorder, meaning like his, yeah. hysteria or whatever, are used. Okay, um, I'm willing to be a little bit open-minded i'm skeptical of the idea of purely psychogenic long-term illness in general but say it exists these categories are still being used as like sort of really lazy catch-alls for like i can't diagnose you in two visits 
there there are plenty of examples like fibromyalgia or anything in that vein. But yeah, the idea that CBT can just cure everything by virtue of practice is a very misguided sentiment. I mean, I guess I'm just thinking that like the way they're throwing it at these people who just like got hit with this virus that people are very aware of being awful um, will kind of radicalize some people and break this misconception because again, it's being experienced as like a collective trauma. Like there were MECFS mm-hmm. outbreaks in the past, but for the most part, nowhere near anything like this level. I think the closest thing is that a lot of people got uh, MECFS after H1N1, but most MECFS outbreaks were like limited in size. So like if the survivors commiserated, it's still like a small amount of people or very atomized. But with this, it's like something that we're all aware of being really bad in general. And when the survivors are commiserating, it's like a lot of, people a ton of people and again like a lot of really relatively young people like 25 i mean i'm just like scrolling the covid19 positive subreddit um and it basically almost there's just like gotta be like thousands of stories on here that are basically they have symptoms similar to just like my entire group of diagnoses but they're just like, it's connected to COVID and they're dealing with it for the first time. Yeah, with hysteria, it's like, um, it's not used as a positive diagnosis. It's used surely as a diagnosis of exclusion. Like, in theory, any psych diagnosis should be uh, founded on like some kind of positive signs, like not necessarily a biomarker, but, you know, something. Um, But the way conversion disorders used is like often used by non-psych experts like um neurologists or something who just like can't find something on one mri to match the severity of your symptoms and then it's just like a wastebasket so it makes it hard for me to kind of respect the idea of psychogenic illness in general which may exist but it's just I've seen so few cases where that diagnosis over time turned out to be correct.